You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Scott Schuler. On the day that I was born again, you remember what that's like. You want to tell people. And one of the ways I knew that I was born again is that I realized I didn't have any friends I could tell. All my friends wouldn't care. In fact, I was more worried that all my friends would cease to be my friends, and I wasn't ready for that after having been bored again for four hours. But I had um, one person I did call, and she said, um, I've been praying for you for years. Where can we meet? Now, I was born again on um, New Year's Day, and so a lot of things were closed, and it occurred to me, uh, let's go to a, a hotel at the airport. We'll meet the, hotels are always open. We'll meet at the restaurant. And so we talked for a long time, and she said, here's where you need to start. Start with the book of Luke, and start with the book of Romans. The book of Luke was a good start. The book of Romans was not. Um, Romans is not Christianity 101. And the funny thing is that Paul wrote it to the church at Rome, to the people at Rome, as a way of reaching out before he even got there, to introduce them and to make sure that they understood the gospel. And one of the things that occurs to me is they must have had a dandy Sunday school program that they could have read this letter and go, oh, I get it. Now we know what to do. Paul gets here, we'll have everything all set. I find, um, as Bill mentioned last week, Romans is not for the squeamish. Um, And it's not for the novice. Doesn't mean don't read it. Just be aware that you're going to need to read Romans a lot for the rest of your life. It's deep, it's abstract, and frankly, one of the things that it has that gives me a lot of trouble, it has a lot of of, um, prepositions. You know the prepositions I mean? In, we are in Christ, baptized into Christ's death, baptized into his resurrection, baptized into his life, we are are in him, and uh, that preposition in particular has been very hard to grab a hold of. Now, I'm going to start off right by pushing the wrong button. Ah! Okay. Just for review, we're going to be talking about Romans, I guess, through into February, right? I, breaking for Yeshua is probably a good idea. Um, Paul, Paul's letter to the Romans was written in A.D. Uh, 59 from Corinth. He hadn't been to Rome yet. Uh, The church there, and it's interesting, I called it the church and then realized Paul never refers to them as the church uh, in the book of Romans. You read through it, he doesn't refer to it as the church yet. For whatever reason that he has, the only time that he mentions the church in Rome at all is at the very end when he has his greetings and he says, uh, greet the church that meets at Anna and Sophia's house. It arose out of the Jewish population, as it usually does, and the Jews had undergone a lot of turmoil. They had been expelled from Rome three times by now, and had been invited back, uh, this time by, of all people, Nero, who brought them back into Rome. They had returned by the time that Paul wrote this letter. There was a lot of tension between the Christian groups that were there. Um, Not unlike today, right? The church being the, the, the global church being the un- incredibly unified body that it is that agrees on all matter of doctrine and principle, 
the people in Rome were off to an early start. They were squabbling already. There were two main Christian groups there. There were the Jewish believers in Christ and there were the Gentile believers in Christ, which was important to Paul because Paul saw himself as an apostle to the Gentiles and he wanted to make sure that he let the people that were the the Jewish believers there understand right from the get-go, as early as he could, that this was going to be a... um, uh, uh, an all-encompassing gospel that goes out to all people. The tension came especially after the latest Jewish return because while the Jewish people were away, the uh, Christians were sort of pulling together their church. When the Jews came back, even though it grew out of the, uh, the Jewish uh, faith, they found that in, in a way the uh, Jews were seen as interlopers. That when they came in, they had things that they wanted to see reinstituted, and they had already been um, sort of passed uh, into the new ways of, uh, of worshiping. So Paul writes to encourage and instruct. What is the gospel? Living the new life and God's plan and their part in it for unity as the body of Christ. Can we read this together? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be unified with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Good thing I read that ahead of time, huh? Those last two words down the bottom. Key theme here is our identity. How do you understand yourself day by day, moment by moment, as a human being? When you meet somebody and they ask you about yourself, How long is it before your being a Christian comes into the conversation? Now, if you're a man, we know what comes first. Job. We're Christians first. 
We are Christians first, last, and always. We have been called into a new life, called to be Christians, and we have given ourselves to someone who now rules over our life. It is our identity. It is who we are in our new essence. Righteousness and justice is of God, which was an important lesson because up until then, as we know, in Rome, Caesar was seen as a god. Caesar was to be worshipped. The Christians and the Jews had a lot of problems with uh, the Romans because this was not something, a transition that they could make easily. This was not something they could fake. This was not something that they were willing to do just to get along with the Romans this was not something that they were willing to give into. They had heard that justice and righteousness came from Caesar, but it doesn't. So even then, they had a church versus state issue. Where does justice and righteousness come from? Who applies it? Whose standards do we follow? Who do we rely upon? Who do we look to for justice and righteousness as Christians? Do we, do we um, uh, just abrogate that and give it to the government? Do we abdicate our responsibility to it and let the government handle all of this? Is it the government's job to take care of righteousness and justice because they have the resources or they have the authority or uh, they have the permission from the people? We see it differently. It comes from God. The government not only, or not just the government, but any, any group, any worldly group, they're not going to come up with anything that is the same as the justice and righteousness of God. They're not going to be able to institute it. And even if they could, their motives are always going to be wrong. And that matters. The one group in Rome sees Caesar as the source of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And the Christians don't. Now this refers back to Romans 5. And we can tell because uh, it's, it's funny. I, I'm not one to complain about who put the Bible together. But sometimes I wonder where they put the chapter divisions. Um, I just don't get it. So here this chapter starts, what then should we say? Which clearly refers back to something else. It would seem like a good place to let that, let that flow. So we start our scripture and we uh, need to go back to a couple of verses where we see that Paul has set up the idea of there being two kingdoms. He is telling his people there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of sin and death, and there's the kingdom of righteousness and life. Be aware in this book that many times Paul will use the word righteousness as a way to refer to God. We are now in righteousness. We have moved into righteousness. We have moved into God's kingdom on the side of righteousness, for example. What then shall we say? Early, he talks about baptism. We are baptized into his death. We are baptized into his life. It's much more than a symbol. In the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church, they will tell you how to go about doing a baptism. It's very detailed. You do this, then you do that, then you do something else. You bring the person here, you tell them what to do. You do it in this particular order, you get it over with, and then you go take pictures of the baby in a white outfit. It doesn't doesn't say that last part, but it might as well, because every baptism I've ever been into in a Methodist church, that's how it went. I remember a pastor uh, that I went to seminary with was talking to a group, a a couple who were bringing their baby in for baptism. 
uh, this was on the eastern shore in Crisfield, had not the slightest idea why they were there, other than that it would make grandmom happy. No, no idea. And finally, um, he was young then, I don't know if he would say this now, but he said, I'll tell you what we do, why don't we just go home and we'll give the baby a bath and we'll call it quits. All you're really interested in doing is getting the baby wet. And once we do that, you're going to say that something has happened, which clearly has not happened. And we have a lot of people um, getting baptized in churches, making promises to God, who not only have no intention of keeping them, they don't even know what they're promising to do. It's more than a symbol. It's more than a procedure. It's more than an initiation. It is seen by Paul as a significant spiritual event. Baptism is important. If I'm not mistaken, the first baptism that I attended here was for Warren. I think that was right. Um, Warren knew what he was doing, if I may speak for Warren. <laughs> they, tell us not, they tell us not to do that. But I have, I've seen uh, fruits of the spirit in Warren, and so I figure he knows what he was saying. He says, I, I'm not doing this to keep my wife happy. I'm not doing this to make anybody else happy. I'm not doing this because there's any pressure. And I'm not doing this because I want to be known as the only person in the church not to have been baptized. I'm doing it because I understand that something is going to happen to me, that I am being incorporated into somebody who has very high expectations of me. It's referred to in this book over and over and over again. And it's not insignificant that Jesus began his ministry by being baptized. Remember what John said to him, right? I can't do this. You know, you're, you're God. Who am I? You know, I'm going to be baptizing God. But he said, have to. Have to do it. Baptism is important. It is significant. God puts significant stress on it. Now, I don't want to get it, you know, the people who are not baptized, do they forfeit going to heaven? No. Because we're still under grace. Not everybody has the opportunity, but um, when you're presented with the opportunity, getting baptized is very important. To be incorporated into the body of Christ and to enter into the kingdom of God. Baptism, as Paul is describing it here, is an exodus. Now, you know what that is. We came out of Egypt. Our people came out of Egypt... Um, Egypt was all wrong. Egypt was where they were being held slaves. And out they go. They, when finally the power of God brought them out at the proper time, you were coming out of there from your Egypt of, or our Egypt of sin. And we're now en route to the promised land. Now, there could be arguments about this, about where are we now? Are we not in the promised land now? Are we not in the kingdom of God now? Paul sees this as we will be baptized into his resurrection, at which time we will receive uh, bodies that are fit for eternal life. We know, we know all that. We're, we're heading for glory. In the meantime, we're on our way, but we are following kingdom rules. We, even though we are not in heaven yet, even though we don't have our new bodies yet, even though we haven't passed the portal that, that Jesus already has passed, we are God's people now. And we have a new master and a new set of rules. So we're a new wilderness generation. If you live out your faith, if you speak your faith, if you broadcast your faith, for a lack of a better way to put it, you are going to be made to feel like you are in the wilderness. 
you are no longer a part of the mainstream. You are no longer a part of the in crowd or whatever else the world wants to describe it as. You are now in the wilderness. You are outside of where you used to be, abiding by another set of rules, and the people will not make you feel welcome. I don't know how many of you have lost friends on account of your faith. I'd be pretty surprised if you didn't, at least some, the, the relationship certainly should change. And the question becomes one when that happens is, is my friendship so important that I'll throw my faith over in order to keep my friendship with them? Or I just say, I've I got to follow you, God, no matter where you go. If you say it, if this is what you want, I am there. Bill said something, Bill said a number of profound things last week because that's sort of Bill's nature. And um, I don't know that Bill can help it. Um, one thing that he said last week, I don't know if this is the one that you expected to sort of stick with a person or not, because it was sort of, I thought it was sort of a throwaway line. But you mentioned, I think if you mentioned like, when God says something, it is life to me. When God says something, I take it seriously. If God said, I don't like microphones, then I don't like microphones. If God, whatever he says, it doesn't make any difference. You know, it's, it's not for me to say, God, that's really a goofy rule. That's really, I don't understand why... God says, I don't like microphones. Microphones are out. And that's the way it is when we go and give ourselves in this new generation. When we give ourselves a part of the, the uh, wilderness generation and we try to go back to the ways of the world, we can't. We have changed and we don't fit in there anymore. And it matters sort of how important it is it to fit in. The Romans needed to understand this because, of course, they were in a community which, where eventually we know they're going to be thrown to the lions. They could have gotten out of that. We follow Jesus on his journey because he, having risen to new life, knows the way, and he is the way. The way. Other ways have been tried. Other ways are still being tried. There are other ways that Christians have tried. But Jesus is the way. We've been liberated. As Paul tells us here, we're not slaves to sin anymore. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. Sin mattered to us. Sin dictated to us. Sinful behavior told us how to behave, and we did it. And we enjoyed it. Remember? I enjoyed it. I couldn't enjoy it now. I couldn't because of my new identity. I just can't. New values, new understanding. Same way, we've given these things up and glad to give them up. But at the time, we enjoyed it. We were slaves. Death and sin no longer are our masters. They no longer dictate to us what to do. This is no, no longer who we want to please. Sin no longer reigns over us, and it no longer reigns in us. Baptized into Christ changes our identity. So, you know, I used all three of the little icons at the top of the sheet there, right? Italics, bold, and underlined. <laughs> That's how important this is. Our identity is not the same as it used to be. Our very identity, who we are, how we see ourselves, how we present ourselves, who we are by nature, it's changed. What is true of Christ is true of us. You're going to have to work on this one for the rest of your life, I think. But we're told this. And it's like being told about the microphone, if, if God's saying this, it is now true. We are baptized into his life, into his death, into his resurrected life. We are in him now. 
We're no longer ruled over by sin. We're no longer dominated by sin. The baptized person, what did I mean by this? Baptized believes, live out Christian law. Oh, yes, believers. <sighs> Spell check, didn't catch that, of course. <laughs> baptized believers, that's, isn't it great to be a part of a family? Somebody knew what that word was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Baptized believers live out Christian lives. We're now with Christ and we're not without him. One of the things we read about oftentimes in, uh, the, in Paul's writing is the split between Adam, who was the model for humankind up until now, and sometimes what's called in the Bible the new Adam, um, the new human being, Jesus. When we're with Adam, Adam is the person who sinned, Adam is the person who rebelled, Adam is the person who says, I want what I want, I will do what I want, and God, you have to fall in line behind me. Jesus is the one who says, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. Adam is the old us under the law. Christ is the new us under grace. To be in Christ, Christ moves in us in power. Um, all of us have blind spots in our faith, I suspect. Mine is about power. One of them. I forget I forget about God's power in my life. Power. The power that created the stars, the power that created the, the, the galaxies, the power that puts so much energy into an atom that when an atom is split, it blows up and makes an explosion you can see 100 miles away. Christ moves in us in power, changing us, remaking us, regenerating us, enabling us, helping us, walking with us. He's present in every way, working with us in power. And changing a human heart. As anybody says that there are no miracles today, a changed human heart is a miracle. If you've ever tried to change a human heart by yourself, it is not changeable. It changes when it's, it changes when it's convenient. It doesn't change as an act of will. It just, I just haven't found that to be true in anybody that I've ever talked to, anything that I've ever read, all the self-help books. If, there, if all self-help books were so good, they wouldn't need any more. Wouldn't, the, wouldn't there be enough self-help books out there to describe how to do all these things? There's still more coming out right now. They're being published right now. They're on their way to the bookstores. We thus are free from the dominion of sin. Now, there are practical aspects to this because we are called to live out here in life, and there's a way that we have to walk there in order to, uh, to be obedient. It affects our daily conduct. We're changed with a new self-understanding, and if we're in Christ, we obey him. He who hears my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. And if we are in Christ, we follow him, where we take up our cross daily. I always forget the word daily. Anybody else have trouble with that? Daily. Moment by moment. I wake up in the morning, I need my cross again. I, I'm tired. I carted my cross yesterday. Every day. I have a thing that happens to me. I, I call it um, my daily dread. I thought that was sort of clever. <laughs> my daily dread this happens to me practically every morning and I'm not kidding my eyes fly open at about 4 in the morning and Satan tells me literally like 5 days out of 7 you forgot to pray yesterday you promised God you were going to pray and you broke and I, I, as I live and breathe God help me God help me um, I try to remember, what was it about yesterday's prayer that was different? 
that I could identify it and not confuse it with the prayer from the day before. Do this all the time. Take up your cross daily and follow me. But we still sin. We're now people who have been, ex- we've, we've exodused into this new realm. We've exodused into the, wor- into the realm of Christ. Um, dot, dead to sin, right? It says right there, dead to sin. I've sinned today. I did, you know, I, I can't, it's what, noon? I, I can't get through noon without a, a couple of sins. Those are just the ones I know about. We are tempted to sin. In this world, even though we are now under the realm of Christ, even though we are now in him, even though we now are, he is our master, we're still tempted to sin. This is a dilemma for a lot of people because we thought, how can this be? The heart is desperately wicked. We're tempted to sin, but family, it's not the same as being dominated by it. It no longer rules over us, over us like it did. We've changed allegiances. We've changed where we live. We've changed uh, who, is, who the, um, uh, is in charge of our lives, who's sovereign. It, we're not being dominated by it. And we know, if we will be honest with ourselves in prayer, we know we are no longer dominated by it. It doesn't rule over us. We don't think to ourselves, how can I sin today? We don't think to ourselves, I can sin all I want so that grace may more abound. Um, God will always forgive me. I can just go ahead and sin and just uh, and have the joy of being um, uh, forgiven. We're not dominated by it anymore. We don't think that way anymore. Christians don't think that way anymore. We know it's coming. Paul told us it's coming. But it's not our way of life, and it doesn't rule over us. So we sin, but sin is not our master. Okay, we come to, come to Jesus... Just as we are. We remember that. Seen the old Billy Graham? They always sing that. Just as I am, without one plea. I'm always amazed by this. I'm always amazed by this. Stadium, <laughs> stadium filled with people. I've, I've said this. I'm, some people, bear with me. I've said this a couple, I know, a number of times. 50,000 people come down. Just as I am without one plea down. Come on down. Come From the upper deck. They come down from Cleveland Stadium, uh, Kansas City Stadium, wherever they are. They come down. 30,000 people give their lives to Jesus in 10 minutes. Go out into the community and what? Oh, not a ripple. I've told people, if you, if you sent 30,000 squirrels out of Cleveland Stadium... Just send out 30,000 squirrels. It would be in every newspaper in the country. What's going on? It's a plague. It's a new, something's going on. 30,000 squirrels. 30,000 Christians go out like completely quiet. We're supposed to be turning the world on its head. We don't even need 30,000. They did it with 11. He does accept us as we are, but we're not to remain as we are. That power that Jesus puts into us, the power that God puts into us to be able to use that to call upon him, to exercise the authority he gives us to go and carry the gospel, not the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ to everybody. He enables us to do this as we are when we give ourselves to him. We're new creatures. Bill touched on this last week, the difference between justification and, and sanctification. We are justified by Christ's death. We are now made right. We are counted as righteous. But the process of sanctification goes on for the rest of our lives. Sanctification is just that. We are being purified. We are being cleansed. We are being made holy. We are being made suitable. We are being made different. We are being made better. We are being made more godlike. 
all the time, moment by moment. It's a process that keeps on going. Sanctification begins with justification. In the, in the, the um, seminary I went to, they, they treat it like, sancti- they describe it as sanctification happens like a nanosecond after you're justified, it starts. There is a sequence to it, but there's no lag time. We're surrendered to grace. Grace is transformative. The grace of God in Jesus Christ changes his people. Because, again, through baptism, it's more important than the modern church appreciates. It just does. Uh, it, is, um, it is not the normal uh, course of events that the church understands what baptism is or teaches what it is, appreciates what it is, and insists upon its people who come up for baptism that they know what it is and understand what they're getting themselves into. Through baptism, Jesus and the believer are intertwined. We are assured of our resurrection, but we must direct our behavior, attitudes, hearts towards godliness. We know we're going to heaven, we know we're saved, and it has to show up in our daily lives. Once baptized, the old person is dead. Dead. The solidarity, identity with the old man is broken. We are supposed to die to self. Anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Dead to self, dying to self, is a very important idea for the Christian because it means that the, uh, if, if you're dead, you do, you do not respond to stimulus. If you are dead to self, the things that used to please you, the things that used to get you going, the, the, uh, the stimulus of sin, it doesn't affect you. It's like it's something dead. You, you can't respond to it to die to self, part of sanctification. We need God's help for that, of course. Savor Paul's point. Because a lot this, these things are not the kind of things that Paul can cover once for all in one chapter of Romans. In fact, in one half of one chapter of Romans. He claims our allegiance now. The word allegiance. He has a claim because we have gone to him in baptism and said, I belong to you. I yield to you. I yield to your claim. I surrender to you. You have a claim because I have yielded it up to you. What do I do? Out of allegiance. We're to be dead to sin by being dead to self. When sin was our master, we were self-centered, self-righteous, self-reliant, self-important. I can relate to that one. Actually, all of them. Self-indulgent, self-serving, self-satisfied, self-obsessed, self-directed. Churches can be errant, too. When churches go wrong, see, I'm already in trouble because I use the word wrong. They begin to emphasize self in some way. I like this gospel better than that gospel. I like this aspect better than that aspect. I like this teaching better than that teaching. If you, God told me that you didn't like microphones, I would just simply switch churches. I'll go someplace where they do like microphones, and I will be perfectly happy there. Three examples. The Emergent Church. Anybody familiar with this? It can't be true if I don't like it. This is, this is growing in front of our eyes. This is, a, the, uh, as Paul would say, this is the tickling ears church. 
I love this. Give, it to, give me more, 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 more. I want all this. It makes me feel good. Not much cross in it, Doug. Cheap grace. It's self-centered and self-directed. This is what I like. Give it to me and leave out all the other stuff. The liberal non-Orthodox church. The guy on the left was a part of the Jesus Seminar. Are you familiar with that? I think I've mentioned that before. The Jesus Seminar got together and voted on whether or not the stuff in Jesus, uh, about Jesus in the Bible was true. Do you believe this? A bunch of people say, we're going, you know, we've got to make up our mind. We're going to vote. They voted using different color marbles. They voted white if, um, if, they said the, if they felt that the teaching was definitely true. They did, I think, yellow if it was um, if probably true. And they did red if they said Jesus didn't say it. And after that, they decided, this is what they decided, they're going to rewrite the gospel based on whether or not they believed anything that was in it. The guy on the left was a part of that, didn't, does not believe Jesus rose from the dead. Guy in the church. It's hard to understand sometimes how far afield we've gone. Self-important, self-righteous. Some of the certain charismatic churches. I got on this guy's website. My wife and I have heard from God, you have got to have one of our prayer clauses. If you have one of our prayer clauses, the rest of your life is going to be hunky-dory. Now, we just don't mail these out for free. Uh, you know, nothing's free, is it? Well, actually, it is. Grace is. But self-indulgent, self-centered, it's based on the experience. I want to feel happy. I want to feel joy. Up in the, the Toronto um, Revival... For reasons I can't explain, I don't even know that they could explain it, they've taken the waving brooms in the air. So when you go into the church, they, you, know, you either bring a broom or they give you a broom so you can wave it around. Weird. It's about experience. Of course, all churches err in some way. We're human. The question is, what is it, Lord? Is it I, faith-seeking understanding? What am I doing wrong? Seeking God's face, praying, put us on the right track. This, re- this sense of repentance, this sense of wanting to get uh, uh, into God's um, uh, understanding what God is saying, reading everything in the scripture and abiding by it, this is where we're called to do. So we're sinning, but we're, are we yet freed from sin? Well, by God's grace, we're baptized into Christ. We're freed from our slavery to sin. And having introduced this, Paul's going to talk about this a lot in the rest of the book of Romans. So uh, he introduces it here and talks about it. But really, this is, a, this is time for a later date. So consider what's happened to you since your baptism. Sin and death remain powerful, but they're not as powerful as before. We have the Holy Spirit to help us do battle. We're not on our own. In dealing with sin, we are told, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. He knows it's going to touch us. He knows it's going to tempt us. He knows we're sometimes going to cave in. Don't let it rain. Our responsibility is hungering after righteousness to live under Christ. We still possess the mortal bodies and we sin. And while sin can exercise a powerful attraction, it's no longer the master. The sinful desires, we are told, are not to be obeyed. And as we know from uh, what we're told also, uh, we are tempted, but God will make a way out for us. We're never tempted beyond our ability to endure. So should we worry about this? No. But be on your guard. Our conscience convicts us. When we uh, give ourselves to the Lord, our conscience convicts us. 
When that happens, you know that's a sign to you you're on the right track. You haven't yielded to sin if you're interested in following what God says and you don't want to, uh, uh, to sin or dis- disobey or disregard what he tells us. We, don't, we might disobey him, but we don't repudiate him. We remain in Christ if we repent, confess, and we ask for his help. In Christ, we are connected, intertwined, not just thinking about Christ now and then. We don't give ourselves to sin, but, our, but members, our mind, our body, our personality, these things that are tempted. We're in the world and not of the world. Remember, we're at war. Not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. And against Satan, who is a roaring lion, prowling around looking for whom he may devour. But we're in Christ. And he is in us. The world will not abide our new identity. Will not. We can't make peace with it. It's like being unequally yoked. The world considers us at best traitors, and at, wor- at best weirdos, and at worst traitors. So shall we go on sinning? Certainly not. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.